If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. The book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, the first five verses. Paul is writing to people he's never met, by the way. He'd never been to Colossae. And he writes this letter to him. But in chapter 3, verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This is our fifth Sunday, looking at the doctrine of original sin. And we've seen that there are five components that make up the doctrine of original sin. That first of all, everyone is afflicted by this. Um, And as offensive as people might find this to be, it in fact means that we're all equal. We're all sinners. We all have original sin. Secondly, we came into the world this way. Thirdly, we must call these propensities, these tendencies, uh, not quirks or anything like that. They are in fact sinful. There's a moral component to our affliction. Number four, we were not originally made this way. God made the world good and perfect. Number five, the only way out is through supernatural intervention. That is God's grace. What we learn from original sin is that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The narrative of the modern world is, in fact, quite different from what we see in Scripture. So, in fact, it says everyone has a different kind of affliction. We're not all equal. And I I find it really ironic, particularly in the 20th century, for all the clamor for equality. It's the 19th century with Darwin and evolution and all that that tells us that we're not equal. That everyone uh, has their own level, if you wish. We're not all equal. It's from Rousseau that we find this belief that we didn't come into the world this way. We came in innocent and then we got corrupted along the way. Therefore, there's not really a moral component to it. It's not my fault that I've been corrupted by outside influences. Lastly, the only way out of this, it is believed, are different different means. I mean, whether it be through medical uh, means or psychological means or just... There's a way out of the dilemma that you face. In reality, this is a rejection of the doctrine of original sin. And I said this at the beginning. It's one of the reasons why I did this series. Is oftentimes we're trying to persuade people that there is a God. That's the wrong fight. That's the wrong battle. What we need to persuade people of is that there is original sin. And we find that being jettisoned long before the atheists of the 19th century come along. In the church, people no longer talk that much about original sin. And instead, we tend to focus on specific actions or specific acts, that this is what is sinful. Almost as to say, if you could get rid of these things, then you'd be okay. And the reality is, you could live a perfect life and you would still have original sin that would need it to be dealt with. Last week, what we saw from Romans 8, in part... Um, says that, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, 
by original sin. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. That is to say, those who have recognized their condition and their inability to cure themselves of that condition, they have instead turned to God through his son, the Lord Jesus, that he might rescue them from and cure them of this condition of original sin. We have been redeemed by God's grace. We have been cured of this condition. But there is one problem. It's a big problem. We still sin. We had the prayer of confession today, acknowledging that we sin. And this leads, this leads to all sorts of frustrations with ourselves. What is wrong with me? Am I even a Christian? Why is it that I still do things that I know to be wrong? We become frustrated with the promised cure, with the one who promised a cure. I thought God saved me, and, and why am I still the way that I am? I do not mention these lightly. We hear some of this in Romans 7.24, in which Paul asks, he says, What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from the body, this body of death? Many of us have struggled with this. Some have struggled mightily with one of these or one or more of these frustrations. Some begin to question the truth of the gospel. Is it really good news if I'm still doing things I shouldn't do? Some have questioned to the point of despair and some have in fact left the faith. They, felt, they feel that they've been betrayed. They thought that God would save them. This gift of God apparently hasn't done what they thought it should do. In a word, there's a true sense of brokenness. I mentioned this at the beginning of the series, in the second sermon of the series, that this is the language we hear oftentimes in the church today, the language of brokenness to describe the human condition rather than the language of original sin. Um, and as I've said, because people have gotten rid of original sin, at least in their thinking, they tend to focus on specific actions rather than the condition in, at, uh, in general. I can't help but wonder if the focus on brokenness is a result of part of the frustrations Christians feel. Here I am a Christian and I'm still doing things I shouldn't do. It is as though I am broken. And then they then turn and put that on unbelievers and say that their condition is one of being broken. How is it that I have accepted God's gracious gift and I still sin? I must be broken. And when we look at unbelievers, we say, well, they must be broken as well. And on some level, yes, but that is not the problem. We've seen that the condition precedes the action. We sin because we are sinners. God, you know, God did not make us that way, but because of Adam and Eve, we in fact are sinners. Well, if the condition has been cured, why do we still sin? Why do we still do the things we know we should not do, and why don't we do the things we know we should do? It's one of the issues that Paul addresses in a number of his letters. In examining this, let me begin by suggesting to you that Jesus Christ, by his gracious gift, has freed us from the condemnation, the condemning power of sin. As Paul told the Roman believers, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, but still 
there is sin. Still we sin. That's why a few sentences later, Paul writes of putting to death the misdeeds of the body. In our text today, in verse number 5, we are told, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. But let's be clear about who is being addressed here. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul writes, since you have been raised with Christ, set your your heart on things above. Um, And in verse number 3, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Um, As we saw last week in Romans 8 and here in Colossians 3, Paul is writing to believers, those who have been redeemed, those who have been cured. There is now no condemnation for them. In the first 11 verses of Romans 8, Paul writes the qualities of the believer. There's no condemnation. They have the Spirit of God in them. Christ is in them. And the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is alive and has brought them to life as well. When you put this all together, the believer is someone who has been pardoned from the condemnation brought about by original sin. The believer who was dead, from Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, is now alive in Christ Jesus. The believer is one who was dead, but now the Spirit lives in him or her. Just as God breathed into Adam the breath of life, when we become the children of God, God breathes into us his Spirit and we have life. We were dead and now we are alive. The believer is one who is now alive as the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in him or her. As I said, this is really just amazing. It's it's truly amazing. But this is what it means to be a child of God. And as one who belongs to God, as an adopted son or daughter, we are truly his children. But we are not perfect. We need to grow. We need to mature. We need to become like his son Jesus. It's not an instantaneous event, but rather a lifelong process. And part of this process is dealing with the reality that we still sin. Some have referred to this as indwelling sin or remaining sin. Before moving on, I want to make this clear that what we are talking about is true of all believers. There is no believer who can say, I no longer have indwelling sin. Um, I no longer have remaining sin. We, in fact, had someone who attended here many years ago who who made the claim that she had not sinned for the previous seven years. Um, No, when we talk about indwelling sin, we're talking about all believers, okay? We are saved by the grace of God, but we still sin. And if we have doubts about this, I would have you consider what Paul said to the Corinthians. It's a different context, but I think the point is clear. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do, not, or they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. Do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat. ESV has discipline. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I recognize Paul's not dealing with indwelling sin as such, but he points to the potential for disaster in himself, that if he did not discipline himself with regard to sin, terrible things could happen. Let me put to you some realities that I would have you consider. 
First of all, indwelling sin will always be with us while we are in the world. And this is what we hear indirectly from Paul. Uh, let me read to you other passages. Galatians 5.17 For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Philippians 3.12 Not that I have already obtained all this, or already have been made perfect. This is Paul speaking. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. In other words, Christ saved Paul, and Paul is on a journey, and he, is, he, is, he has not attained. There is still the struggle going on. He's pressing on. 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And then perhaps the more familiar is from 1 Corinthians 13. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. There's one more in Romans 7. I know, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. This is the reality of being a human being in a fallen world. Second thing that we need to recognize is that indwelling sin is not only with us, but it is always active. It is always acting and working to cause us to sin. It's important for us to recognize this. Indwelling sin isn't simply just dwelling there. It isn't simply remaining in us. It is active all the time. It is always in conflict with the Spirit who seeks to do what the Spirit seeks to do in and through us. The Spirit of God seeks to make us like Jesus Christ and remaining sin and indwelling sin is fighting every inch of the way. The author of Hebrews tells his readers, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We need to realize that sin is always acting, it is always conceiving, it is always seducing, always tempting, and always troubling. And so it has to be dealt with. You just cannot ignore it. As one writer put it, if, if sin will ignore us, then we can ignore sin. But in fact, it does not. It's always at work within us. Let me read a, a direct quote. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. The third thing I would suggest to you is that since indwelling sin is a reality, an active one, we need to recognize that we do not, if we do not deal with it, then it will result in great, greater sins. And scripture is a testament to this. James wrote, But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. In Hebrews, again, we read, Let us encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It is there to deceive us. It is the deceitfulness of indwelling sin that is like, that's not really a big deal. Don't worry about it. This particular sin, yeah, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. We can hardly imagine that death would be the result of that, that little sin, and yet that's what we are told in Scripture. A little lust, a little coveting, a little unbelief, it's not a big deal. Can't hurt, can it? Well, absolutely it can. David looks out and sees Bathsheba bathing. And before the story is over, he has her husband killed. 
leads to adultery and then to murder. A little look won't hurt. Really? Ask David about that. Dwelling sin is always at work within us. As I was preparing the sermon, I thought some might be thinking, I didn't come to church to be put on some kind of guilt trip. Came here to be encouraged. Well, let me encourage you to fight indwelling sin. Let me encourage you to know that it is always there, always active. And it must be fought against. I think I have to tell you these things. These realities, they are true. I need to warn you and to instruct you. The fourth thing I would suggest to you is that the Spirit has been given to us as well as a new nature. This means that there is going to be a conflict within us. We have indwelling and remaining sin, but we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. We saw this in Galatians 5. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. So there's already a conflict there. And the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. We hear this also in Second Peter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given to us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We have been given the promise of God, the promise of the Spirit. And what that does is create a conflict because we still sin. We still have indwelling sin. But we have the perfect Spirit of God living within us. At this point, I think we are likely or we're liable to fall into one of two dangers. The first is that we may in fact neglect the work of the Spirit. And we can imagine, I can take on sin on my own, in my own strength. I can get rid of all these bad habits, these terrible thoughts, and I can do this on my own. And then one might ask, well, if that's the case, why have we been given the Spirit of God? In the Old Testament prophets, we hear this promise. In fact, from our reading this past week in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's part of the reason why God has given us his spirit. We need to recognize that apart from him we can do nothing. And thus the spirit has been given to us. So the one danger is to think we can do it on our own. But the other danger, the opposite danger, is to imagine that we don't have to do anything. We don't have to struggle. The Spirit will do it all. Uh, Sort of in the traditional let go, let God, just the Spirit will take care of everything. Uh, I think there's one word that that will cancel that argument, and that word is obedience. Why are we called to be obedient if, in fact, we don't have to do anything? If, it's, if the Spirit is the one that's going to do the fighting for us and take care of all those things, then why are we called to lives of obedience? Why is the promise given that the Spirit will move you to follow my decrees? I do think the Spirit moves us, but we are to be obedient. The Spirit doesn't do everything. We are working in conjunction with the Spirit of God. We are to live by the power of the Spirit. As Paul tells the Philippians, for it is God who works in you 
to will and to act according to his good purpose. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. These realities and others, when we put them together, should make us realize that there is a need to put to death indwelling sin, the misdeeds of the body. As we saw last week, Paul speaks of the earthly nature, the sinful nature, the misdeeds of the body. And as I said, and I, I want to make this clear, we shouldn't imagine that, that the body is the problem. Uh, this, Paul uses this as metonymy, that he uses uh, something to inc- uh, refer to something greater. Um, let me give you a hand, for example, doesn't mean literally let me give you a hand, it means let me help you. In the same way, when we are to put to deed, uh, put to death the misdeeds of the body, it isn't simply that the body is the problem. Um, it's much more than that. I think that's important, living when and where we do, because otherwise we'll have a purely materialistic view of things and the body's a problem. Uh, well, yeah, what about your mind? Um, what about your emotions? I, okay, so here we are. Let's review. We're born into this world with original sin, meaning that we sin because we are sinners we are not sinners because we sin. Secondly, we share this condition with our fellow human beings, meaning that we are all equal and that we are all sinners. Thirdly, we, the human race, were not originally made this way. And this is something I've stressed, I think, in almost every sermon in this series. It's really important. We believe in the original goodness of creation, a reflection of the goodness of the Creator. The good Creator made a good creation. More specifically, we hold to the original goodness of humanity. In the various confessions of the church, when they deal with original sin, they also speak of original righteousness. That is to say, goodness is prior to evil. Goodness is prior to evil. It also means that human beings have value. Oftentimes in the church in the past, It has focused so much on original sin and on our sinfulness that it has, in fact, uh, lessened, if you wish, the value of human beings. Human beings have great value. We are made in the image of God. We bear the image of God. And sin has come into our lives to change that or to mess that up. It can't change it, but it seeks to deface what it finds in us. Also, we see that the only possible solution or cure requires divine intervention meaning that we cannot save, we cannot cure ourselves. What we find in scripture is that the work of Christ forgives our condition and that the work of Christ has freed us from the condemnation of this condition. Even though we are set free from the condemnation of sin, we still sin. And the call of God our Father to his adopted children is to put to death the misdeeds of the body or as we find it in our text today, to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. This is not something we can do on our own, meaning it requires the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not to leave the work to him and say, that Spirit, that's your job. Keep me good today. Um, we are to be obedient. We are to put to death that which belongs to our sinful nature. How do we do this? 
how do we deal with indwelling sin? It is my hope that the next time I speak, we will deal with this in some detail. I can't help but wonder, though, if some are thinking, why? Why bother? After all, we are the children of God. We have been set free from the condemnation of sin. We're going to spend eternity in heaven with him. Why are we spending this time looking at indwelling sin, an original sin? It seems like a distraction. We're all set. Why bother? Why discourage us all this talk of indwelling sin? Well, let me suggest several reasons. First of all, our relationship with our Heavenly Father, God our Father. Our relationship to Him, our walk with Him is affected by how we deal with sin. If we are comfortable with sin, I would suggest we will not be comfortable with our Father, with His presence. As the psalmist wrote, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. To be at home with sin must of necessity affect our relationship with our Father. If we are unfaithful to him by being faithful to sin, if you wish, then it will affect our relationship. Secondly, we are not to grieve the Spirit of God who lives within us. God has given us His Spirit. He lives within us. How do you imagine that He feels when we are at home, when we are comfortable with indwelling sin, when we think it's not a big deal? Paul wrote the Ephesians, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. third reason I would suggest that we must deal with the remaining sin is that our spiritual vitality will be diminished. The comfort of being a child of God will depend on how we deal with sin. Sin weakens our heart. It deprives us of strength. One writer put it amazingly this way, it untunes the heart. It unframes the heart. That is to say, it diverts the heart from that which is required, relationship with God. You're supposed to be in tune by God's grace. And if we are comfortable with sin, then somehow we are untuned. We are out of tune. Sin darkens the heart. One writer put it, it is a cloud, a thick cloud that spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. It takes away all sense of the privilege of our adoption. I can't help but wonder if in fact the issue of remaining sin and dwelling sin has not troubled us because like Samson we have not realized that the spirit has departed. We are, if you wish, almost in a spiritual coma The Spirit of God lives in us and sin doesn't bother us. When we do things we shouldn't do, it's, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. Or we become much more concerned with the possible consequences rather than how it affects our relationship with God.
People see the world and they see that it is in a mess. They want to fix it, but they don't want to deal with sin. It's not possible. We have been set free from its condemnation. We should live as though that were true. To do so by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit who lives within us. Let's pray together. Father, I fear that we are far too comfortable with sin. Somehow we imagine we've got our tickets punched, we're going to heaven. We are your children, nothing can change that. And yet, as we've seen in our readings in the Old Testament, such an attitude is one of unfaithfulness, as in marriage. We are, in essence, cheating on you when we are at home with sin, when we see it as not a big deal, when we give our energies to it, and we do not fight against it. I thank you that the Lord Jesus has come, has given his life to set us free from the condemnation of sin. May we rejoice in that, but may we not take it for granted. May we recognize moment by moment the good news that has been given to us that we have new life, you have breathed into us your spirit, and he is there to help us on the journey. We're not to cruise, we're not to coast. Moment by moment, we are to follow the steps of the Lord Jesus. And in our case, because we have sin, he did not, we must battle with sin, not in our own strength, but by your wonderful gift of the Spirit. I ask that you would help us to think on these things, that the Spirit would bring them to our hearts and would convict us of our careless, uh, casual attitude towards sin. May we remember that you have adopted us to be your children. We should act like it. We should think like it. We should reflect your love and your glory to those around us. I pray for Tom and Titus who will be speaking for us the next two Sundays. Help them the coming weeks as they prepare. Guide their thoughts as they put them together. We look forward to hearing from them. Now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. Thank you for loving us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.